You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today, we're bringing you an episode from the Encore series, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. I'm Charles Fulcher. Today, we're heading back to October 4th, 2016, when the National Law Enforcement Museum hosted a Witness to History panel discussion entitled, Investigating O.J. Simpson, the Case for DNA. From January to October 1995, Americans found themselves captivated by a sensational drama taking place in a Los Angeles courtroom. Hollywood screenwriters a few miles away would struggle to write a fictional case as dramatic as that which took place in the trial of Orenthal James Simpson, accused of the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ronald Goldman. Dubbed the trial of the century, The People vs. O.J. Simpson brought the American people into the courtroom of the Honorable Judge Lance Ito, where, along with the jury, they heard volumes of shocking testimony and larger-than-life cross-examination led by the stern District Attorney Marsha Clark and the brash Johnny Cochran of the defense. But the public also found themselves perplexed as they were presented with an unfamiliar type of forensic evidence, DNA. To those hoping for a conviction in this trial, DNA appeared to be the smoking gun, but to a public that had not yet seen television shows like CSI syndicated over nearly every hour of the day, this new technology seemed untrustworthy and, in a way, invasive. DNA evidence was first used to prosecute a case in the United States in 1986, only nine years prior to the Simpson trial. The panelists we bring you today were all key players in both the Simpson case and in the evolution of DNA technology. They will first discuss both the use and the misuse of this technology on the O.J. Simpson case, and then later explore the effect the case had on public perception of what we now see as the pinnacle of smoking gun evidence. Now, we present part one of Investigating O.J. Simpson, the case for DNA. Good evening, everyone. You know, it really did live up to that moniker, trial of the century, in terms of the interest. I mean, here we are, all these many years later, still talking about it. Uh, and then there was the recent television movie that was made uh, that for which several Emmys were awarded. We'll talk about that a little later, too. I understand one of our guests has another nickname for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> But the trial also pointed out the difficulty of trial by jury to render a verdict solely based on the evidence presented in court. There were many players in the bigger drama, and the trial sparked debate on a number of issues, including the impact of cameras in the courtroom, the role of the media in creating a context and then a, a narrative for what's happening in court, and the attitudes of the American public when it comes to race in determining the fate of a defendant on trial. Detective Tom Lang served in the Vietnam with the Marines before joining the LAPD in 1967, staying for almost 21 years. You worked with your colleague, Philip Vanner, who died about three years ago on this case, and it was not lacking for physical evidence. You all went out and combed the site. In your book, you detail how meticulous you were at the crime scene, protecting Nicole's body from view and from being disturbed because everything at that crime scene had the potential for being evidence. 
So to start us off, tell us what you thought, and more importantly, what you did when you arrived at that crime scene. How much time we have? <laughs> <laughs> You've got the floor. Okay. Uh, initially, we got the call at about 3 a.m. Uh, that there was a double homicide in the West L.A. area. Uh, I was told by my lieutenant, John Rogers, that uh, they were unidentified at the time and that they'd been stabbed and slashed, and it was kind of a brutal bloody crime scene. That area in West LA is very rare for that to have occurred, especially in a residential area. We don't have a lot of violence or homicides over in that area. When I showed up, it was a little after 4 a.m., and the crime scene had been secured with the yellow tape you've seen. They had Bundy Drive secured. They had the alley behind the residence secured. There were probably 20 or 25 police personnel at the scene. Uh, West Los Angeles Division was the primary detectives called out. In Los Angeles, we have 18, or at the time, we had 18 geographical divisions, and each division had their own homicide unit and be, would be responsible within that geographical area. I didn't work for a geographical unit. Mine was called Homicide Special Section out of what's called Robbery Homicide Division. Uh, we have citywide jurisdiction, and we would take over a case that's a high-profile nature, serial killings, things of this nature, because, frankly, the other divisions don't have the time to deal with such things. That's all we would do. So the case was being handed over to us uh, because by the time that I'd arrived, they had a tentative ID on the uh, female, as Nicole Brown Simpson, either married to, estranged from, or divorced from O.J. Simpson, the football player. So a decision was made at the upper levels of management that we would take the case. So we arrived at the scene. My partner came before me. We were met by the West Los Angeles detectives. And uh, we were described what was there at the scene. And the perimeter had been secured. And what we do at homicide scenes, we have it a secure area where everybody can walk through. It's one little path where there is no evidence, where you won't step on evidence, where you're, you're not uh, bound to ruin something or screw up some evidence or whatever else. And this was through the rear of the location. So we're given a tour of what the uh, West Los Angeles people had just to orient us with the case. Uh, and then they would turn it over and we would be in charge. So the first thing we would do is make sure we have security around the scene, that the, the scene is roped off, and we have people assigned, we have people been notified, people en route, we have someone keeping a log of all activities of what everyone is doing at all times, and then we would be given the tour from the rear alley forward through the house and then down to uh, where the two victims were. And as we were taking this tour, the uh, detectives that arrived before us uh, would point out various pieces of evidence that, that they saw and that they observed. So again, at a crime scene, and there's a lot of law enforcement here that understands this, there are two bodies, they're brutally killed, it's a horrible scene, everything else, but from this point on, you have to look at these two bodies as evidence. They're no longer alive, and it sounds a little cold, but that's what you have to do. You can't psychologically get involved in the horror of, of some of these murders because then you take your eye off the ball and you're not really doing what you're supposed to be doing. So we look at this as evidence, these two bodies, and so they protected like everything else at the scene. 
Initially, we, uh, it's pointed out to us that there are bloody footwear impressions leading away from the location towards the west, towards the alley. There's an alley behind the Bundy location, 875 Bundy. It's a dark alley. There's a series of gates along the walkway. We see these bloody footwear impressions moving from the bodies towards the rear, uh, and we did a so-called stride analysis. It's roughly 30 inches heel to toe on the person who left those footwear impressions, indicating to us they didn't run from the scene, they walked from the scene, which is a little unusual. You think two bloody homicides and somebody committed, they want to get out of there. The person who left those footwear impressions walked from the scene. Of interest is when they walked up a three or four steps, they went towards the front door, and this person stopped like this. You see the bloody footwear impression stopped, and then they turned around, and they looked back to where the bodies were, thinking perhaps, oh, I dropped something, maybe the glove, my cap, whatever, decided not to go back, turned around, and then the footwear impressions continued on through the gates to the alley. Alongside the left side of the footwear impressions, there's a trail of blood. Now, there's six droplets. They tail towards the rear in a westerly direction and are adjacent to the footwear impressions. This indicates to us that the individual, the source, was bleeding somewhere on the left side of their body because, again, the blood tails in the direction that the footwear impressions go. We figure this is a suspect's blood. This is good evidence, obviously. Uh, we want to protect that. The bodies themselves, uh, you could tell that they'd been stabbed and slashed numerous times. Uh, Nicole was uh, nearly decapitated. You could see her vertebrae from the front. Uh, it was evident that she was probably grabbed from the rear and her throat slashed left to right. She was wearing a short shift dress. I guess that's what they call them, a cocktail dress. And she wasn't wearing any shoes. Well, there was no blood on the bottom of her feet. So the first time she was attacked, she went down and stayed down. That was it. She didn't move around. Conversely, the young male, Ron, turns out to be Ronald Goldman, uh, he was obviously in a fight for his life. There were defense wounds on his hands. He was slashed and stabbed. His body was off to the side, out of public view. Uh, there were wounds evident to his hands, where he was probably defending himself and fighting someone off. There were a number of perimortal and post-mortem wounds to the body. Uh, so he was even slashed and stabbed after his heart had stopped, after he was actually dead. There was a number of pieces of evidence at the scene. There was a dark blue uh, knit cap uh, lying between the bodies. There was a, an envelope with a pair of prescription glasses in it. Uh, there was a set of keys. There was a uh, pager location. Uh, there was a glove, one left-handed glove uh, between the bodies. So it's not too hard to figure out. You got a left-hand glove here. There's no right-hand glove anywhere to be seen. You've got someone injured on the left side of their body. There's a good chance that whoever was fighting with these people, whoever attacked these people, lost a left glove. And after that glove was lost, had his hand cut in some fashion, and it was bleeding from the scene all the way back to the rear. Now at the gate, the other side of the gate, we have a, a round blood droplet 
perfectly round, indicating that the source is no longer moving, that the source stopped. Next to this round drop of blood, there's a two coins and a little insignia. It looks like it's off a child's toy lying on the pavement. I theorize that perhaps whoever this is stopped and they're looking for their keys. That's why the blood is no longer tailing. The source at that point has stopped because there's a circular round drop of blood. Um, and we have two coins, so perhaps the person was going for their keys. The blood drop goes down. They dropped a couple of coins inadvertently. That tells us that very possibly the suspect is parked in the alley somehow and was going for the keys and, and they left. Uh, various notifications are made. Uh, in this case, we had Bundy Drive now uh, blocked off. The main concern before we get into any of this, into the evidence, is that everything is secure, that everybody has a job, and you protect what you have before you collect it. So we need criminalists at the scene. Uh, we've asked that the criminalists roll. We ask that when the coroners roll, that they also have their criminalists assist us at the scene because in the state of California, a homicide investigator cannot even touch a body. Uh, you see a lot of this on television where the, the cops, they come there and they go through the pockets and they look at this and they roll the body over and they do, you don't do any of that, obviously. Most people here know that. Uh, you don't try to identify them or anything else. That's the coroner's job. Even if there's a weapon, we can't touch it. That's up to the coroner. Blood patterns are very important at a crime scene. We had numerous blood patterns that are all, they all tell a story. So we wanted the coroner's criminalist to be there to take the blood patterns from the victims, because many of them were on both victims, on one in particular, Nicole, but they didn't have one available. So this is where one of the most important things, if not the most important thing in a criminal investigation comes in, coordination and communication. Lack of communication is the bane of any criminal investigation. And believe me, there's a lot of lack of communication. People make assumptions. People forget. People, they get the blinders on. This is a big problem. And we had this problem initially. First thing, of course, was the coroner did not have a criminalist. So I have to entrust this when the bodies are removed to have them preserve the blood patterns. Now, we, did, we were able to photograph them. So we photographed the blood patterns. They were in like a 360-degree angle, tailing in all directions. It tells me that these patterns were probably cast off from a weapon. On the left shoe, on the sole of the shoe, I see another one of these blood patterns uh, that tails upwards, but doesn't make a lot of sense because the blood was delivered to the sole of the shoe while the, the victim, Ron Goldman, was down. So we're interested in that in that pattern because it, it didn't fit. Obviously, it, it happened when this victim was down. So you have th these similar patterns on Nicole's back, four feet, 10 inches away, you have a foot of Ron Goldman with the same blood pattern. I believe it's cast off. I've seen cast off in these types of things. Cast off is when someone is cutting, slashing, everything else, and the blood is flying everywhere, and it tails in this direction, it tails in that direction, so you know you you look at the victims and you know that you probably got a couple of dozen wounds, so that would not be uncommon. So we're interested in this blood. I'll jump ahead real quick on the blood. The blood turns out to be a combination of both victims. 
that's on the sole of Goldman's shoe. That tells us that there's one common murder weapon. The bloody footwear impressions are one type only. The, the FBI here in town actually identified these footprints, shoe, footwear impressions, as Bruno Mali Italian shoes. There's only one set of these footwear impressions at the scene, and they're between the two bodies. That corroborates the one knife theory. The wounds are compatible, which further corroborates the one knife and the one suspect theory. So this is important stuff. Obviously, the one set of bloody footwear impressions with the blood droplets leaving the scene corroborates that. So we have some idea what happened. But this is just the beginning. Usually these crime scenes last for many, many hours. First call is made to the coroner. And our concern now is publicity. Bundy Drive is a very busy street during the week. This is a Sunday night, now we're into early Monday morning. Pretty soon, in fact, within three to four hours, there's going to be traffic on Bundy Drive. Bundy Drive is a major thoroughfare between San Vicente on the north and Wilshire Boulevard on the south in West Los Angeles. It's very, very busy, especially on a Monday morning. And we have this thing blocked off. Obviously, someone's going to know something's going on. Uh, so we have a decision to make. We open up Bundy. Maybe the media won't get onto it, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> everything. Or we misdirect traffic. We have to do something. So the decision is made to open Bundy up. And really, it didn't matter one way or the other because they were going to find out something's going on. Well, they did. And the media started to show up. At this point, we realize that we have Nicole identified. We haven't identified the young man yet. We're ordered to, we're told that it's O.J. Simpson's wife, like I said, or ex-wife. We don't know at this point. He just lives five minutes away. They want myself and my partner and two other detectives uh, from West L.A. One of them is Mark Furman. The four of us to respond to this Rockingham location to notify O.J. Simpson that his either his estranged wife or his divorced wife, whatever, has, had a, has a problem. She's no longer living. And we had two children that the police had taken out of the, the condo at the police station. So it's important to locate him before the media does, to take care of his kids, elicit his cooperation, because we're going to need him. He's not a suspect at this point. There's been a lot of consternation about that over the years. He was not a suspect. Evidence tells us who suspects are, and we have no evidence at this point. The plan is for four of us to go over there Furman and his partner will stay there. Phil and I will return to the scene and conduct a crime scene investigation. We leave the location. It's secured. The four of us go to... Am I taking too long, by the way? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you when we get to the right point. Okay. But we are yeah. not there yet. Oh. <laughs> I, I I'm, I'm listening. We are not there yet. I hope anyway. you're a patient man. <laughs> we go to Rockingham. It's 5.15 in the morning. We come up Rockingham. It's a very exclusive area of West Los Angeles, Brentwood area. It's a narrow street. There's only one vehicle parked on the street, and it's a white Bronco. It's kind of stuck out a little bit like someone who parked it was in a hurry. It's parked by the so-called Rockingham Gate of Simpson's Estate. There's another gate around the other side called the Ashford Gate. Pull up to the location. There are two cars in the driveway. There's lights on inside the home. There's a phone outside for us to call in. Uh, and there's a West Tech security sign there. West Tech has a local security outfit that watches these homes. We call in, there's no answer. Call again, no answer. Uh, we call West Tech security. They, they roll by, 
actually before the call went through, one of the gentlemen on patrol came by. And so we stopped him. We told him we needed to get inside that O.J. Simpson had lived there. Uh, does he have any information or does he have any contact people that we can get a hold of? Because no one's answering. He says, well, there should be somebody in there because we haven't been notified about anything. So I'm thinking bloody crime scene, overkill, personalized. Two miles away, we have two bloody corpses. Um, we got lights on inside the house. We've got cars in the driveway. We've got a vehicle. I don't like the way it's parked. You guys who are cops out there know what I mean. You got a funny feeling in your gut. Something isn't right. You can't articulate it, but something's wrong. We have a choice to make at this point. Uh, the West Tech guy says there should be someone in there. Uh, Mr. Simpson never notified us he was leaving town and usually does, or someone does, or his office does. And then they say there's a housekeeper that lives in there. So now there's more concern. Do we have two more bodies inside? So we have a decision. If you're a cop, you make decisions. You don't sit on the stump. You've got to do something here. Uh, later on to hear this story, some people would think, well, no big deal, just go to breakfast, forget about it, everything's fine. We don't do that. These are what we call exigent circumstances. There's a reason to believe someone inside that house may either be dead or dying. There's a reason to believe O.J. Simpson is in that house dead. There's a reason to believe maybe the housekeeper who's not responding is in the house because we have the cars and the driving and lights on inside. Again, we call, nobody responds. We go over the wall. There's a dog, an Akita dog in there. Good thing, he's a very friendly dog. He was a, we were very happy about that. We bang on the door, no response, bang some more, holler some more. It's about 5.20 in the morning, no response. We move to the rear of the location. It's a very large estate, and we come across a series of bungalows. There's one to the south, and there's two in front of us. Uh, so we knock on the door of the first one. But the first thing we do is go to the rear door, and we look inside, and it's dark. The rear door is, is locked. We bang on the first uh, bungalow, and it's uh, Arnell Simpson, O.J.'s older daughter. Uh, we startled her. We woke her from sleep, you know, in the middle of the night or late, early in the morning. She's startled. She's got four guys sitting there. She doesn't know who we are. We identify ourselves on private property, waking her up. She's obviously very concerned. She doesn't know what's going on. She's half asleep. We explain that uh, we ask, if, is, your, is your father here? This is another point of consternation, and unfortunately, Arnell uh, had a little memory problem or forgot what she told us And uh, when this came to trial, but I asked if her father was inside, uh, where, is, where is your father, Mr. Simpson? And she said, well, he's inside, isn't he? This type of thing. Later, she denies that. That's another story. Now, this is where I'm going to hold you up just for a bit. Get it. It's a lot of information, but once again, what we've heard is that detectives have been out on the crime scene into the home, so when they get back to their colleagues that are going to assist them in, in investigating this, this is what they brought back. And this is also why I'm introducing our guests one at a time. I'll introduce them and then let them talk, and then you can associate the role that they played in this and the role that they played with DNA forensics as we go forward. It's kind of a complicated story, even though we all think we know it. Brock Harmon, you were a deputy district attorney and a DNA expert assisting the LAPD in this case. What role did you expect forensic evidence and especially DNA evidence to play at trial in the courtroom? 
Well, within 12 hours of what maybe more, a little bit more than that Tom was talking about, the first DNA work was done. We can talk about that whenever you want to later on. But I was a prosecutor in Alameda County, so I was sitting home watching the news like everybody was, hoping that guys like Tom, who I'd never met, were doing a good job and being confident that they were. But it became very clear early on that physical evidence was the key to it, uh, even though ultimately people perceived that there were issues about it. So this was a, a I won't say purely a physical evidence case, but if if the suspect had been an unknown person, it would have been purely a physical evidence case. The suspect was a national hero, so it became a different kind of case. Hmm. I can't talk as long as him. No, 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 no. <laughs> let me let me follow Not to up that question. Let me follow up because I want to establish early on what are the capabilities and the limitations of DNA forensics at the time of this sure. investigation and this trial? You know, that's a great question. I'm sure Jennifer can, because we've known each other since long before that. Um, at, at that time, uh, we had the capability with the combination of private labs and the FBI of virtually uniquely identifying the source of some biological evidence with the combination of stuff is a lot faster and more sensitive now. So the potential existed then. Um, we actually had done our first cases in 89, 88, 89, and 90. So it wasn't quite, it was about as new as this suit is. And it's not a new suit because I'm retired. Um, but um, uh, so it, it had that capability, especially when the evidence was fresh in adequate amounts. So I was sitting home watching television being totally confident that whoever did it was going to be caught. And I remember going to work the next day, guy walked down the hall and said, OJ's wife was murdered and they're looking for OJ. And I said, what are they looking for, for him for? Not realizing that a few months later I would be down there being a part of the prosecution team. Dr. Jennifer Smith, you worked at the FBI for 23 years overseeing DNA analysis in the lab. You eventually directed that lab. You also testified in hundreds of cases. In July of 2015, you were named director of the Department of Forensic Sciences in DC. Where were we in gathering, analyzing, and presenting at trial DNA evidence at the time of the trial compared to where we are? So, um, you know, I can almost remember exactly. I was a, um, probably had been in DNA typing. I started in 1990 in the FBI lab um, as a forensic DNA analyst at the time. And this came in when we had a technology. The first technology we were using was actually used in this case. It was something we call RFLP. And it required you had a stain about the size of a nickel, let's say. So a relatively large stain that you could see and in relatively good shape. In other words, if Mother Nature had gotten to it and started chewing it up, we might not be able to utilize it. But as um, Rock said, if we had enough, the, uh, the technology could be applied and we could get a profile and it could be a pretty compelling piece of evidence. Now, if that stain was mixed with another stain, 
that would complicate things, right? So again, think of larger stains, things like that. We also had new technologies using something called PCR, which allowed us to copy DNA over and over and over again. These were just becoming um, used throughout some laboratories, and they weren't as informative. So in other words, if you think of DNA like a dictionary or a you know, multi-page book, the, the early PCR only allowed us to look at one or two pages at a time. So not very informative, but very sensitive, because I could look at very, very small stains. So this case has lots of blood, right? But it's, it's got to be probative, right? So, and you could think, okay, is it probative of, you know, let's say I've cut myself and I'm bleeding on my clothing, so I might have a huge stain there, but at the end of the day, how probative is that stain, right? So maybe these smaller stains are more probative because we're trying to find somebody's blood on something, right? So what they used here, the community actually, I think, kind of banded together and made themselves available to this case. So I, I think you have to applaud what was done in this case because they got a very good private lab to work with them. They used their state lab to work with them. Now, the FBI did none of the DNA testing. We weren't actually needed. But we were sort of sitting there watching as the analysis unfolded. So we had the technology. But what was still quite controversial were what I'll call the stats. What's the meaning of that profile? How common is this profile? How rare is that profile? And that was still being hotly debated within our community. There were population geneticists on both sides of the argument, right? Are they applying these statistics correctly? And so this case became a trial of DNA, both the technology and of the statistics. And if we fast forward many years later, I'm a professor at Penn State in 2011. And I found that this man somewhere out in California had set his VCR and let it run for the entire trial to include all the little commentary. 7,000 hours. Mm -hmm. So I'm at Penn State. And if any of you are Penn State grads, some of your Penn State money went towards buying 7,000 hours. <laughs> of the OJ trial. <laughs> and I went through it as a forensic science professor now to see what were the actual testimony about the forensic science. And then what was the play-by-play -play that the audience got to see, but the jury didn't get to see? Because I think that's important. If you were watching this on TV, you heard more than what the jury heard. So you need to keep that in mind. And I told my students, of course, I'm telling my students that they're, I exposed my students about 50-some hours of this. And they're going, OJ who? Right? It's like four years ago. Little did I know they'd make a movie about it. So now I'm feeling pretty good. But anyway, so I just, I, you know, it, it's a great lesson about how to testify about forensic evidence. And that's how I use this case. So it's fascinating from the investigative point of view. But when you look at it from a forensic scientist, did the scientist deliver that information? So that was also happening in our community. The technology was changing. We were fighting the stats and then explaining this to a juror. And we took the approach in those days to speak to you for four days about DNA till your head exploded. And I don't know if you remember, but Jay Leno was doing some very interesting sketches as this trial was going on. And he actually had this sketch where he showed the jurors. And they're listening to this DNA person going on and on. And their heads are just getting <laughs> bigger and bigger until, you know, Kaboom. 
And that was a huge lesson from this trial, that sometimes we tried to make DNA experts out of every one of our jurors, right? So, you know, sort of as a forensic science scholar, I know there are a few of us out there. Anyway, we look at this now retrospectively to say, what did happen and how can we use this? And so this trial, but I would say that some of you may think the DNA was young or wasn't informative. That's a misimpression. The DNA was, was actually very compelling information. Maybe it wasn't projected well. You know, and this isn't a fault to the prosecutors, this isn't a fault to the scientists. This is sort of one of those step back and look at it and say, how could we explain this better? And not just the DNA, but the whole forensic you know, evidence that was laid before them. Um, it, was, it, was, it was quite, it's fascinating to look at how it was countered, how it was attacked, how you know contamination was the C world in our word in our world the C word is contamination you know and and how how is that you know brought into this trial and it's a, it's an exceptional case to look at just from that point of view but as a DNA person to go back and look at it the DNA was actually very sound and technically well done for what we could do at the time um, and and so you know I I just want to leave that with you guys to think about. So in the meantime, you can see how difficult a challenge that the prosecution had. But again, this was the trial of the century. Now that we have a better understanding of the evidence and the scene at Bundy Drive, part two will dive more deeply into the analysis and importance of that evidence and how it ultimately helped to shape what would become known as the trial of the century. Thanks to Anna Muckenfuss, our Manager of Programs and Education Initiatives, for helping write today's program. And Christopher Mitchell, our Manager of Digital Content and Strategy, for producing. And many thanks to you for listening to this episode of Encore, a Precinct 444 podcast from the National Law Enforcement Museum. We hope you will return for part two of our Encore presentation of Investigating O.J. Simpson, The Case for DNA. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. And we would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to Precinct 444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org, and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct.